Welcome. This is the Sydney Ideas Podcast, bringing you talks and conversations featuring the best and brightest minds at the University of Sydney and beyond. Well, hello there and welcome to Sydney Ideas 2022. This is the University of Sydney's Public Talks Program. My name's Fenella Kernerbone and I'm the Head of Programming for Sydney Ideas and I'm your host uh, for our event. Thank you so much for joining us. This is our first event for 2022 and we are overjoyed to have you here. Now, before we continue, I would firstly like to acknowledge and pay respects to the traditional custodians of the lands on it, on which we all meet uh, and work and where we share ideas, uh, wherever you happen to be joining us today. I'm coming to you from Gadigal land today. I also want to pay my respects and acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and it's on their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. And as we share our knowledge and our learning and our teaching, our research practices as well uh, within the university, may we also pay our respect to the knowledge that is embedded forever within Aboriginal custodianship of country. Uh, again, it's great to be here, a really exciting and fun event to kick off our year for you because we're basically talking about the shape of things to come. Got some really brilliant minds uh, for you from across uh, the university who are going to be sharing with you some of their big thinking for 2022 and I'm going to be introducing you to them shortly. Um, let me tell you a bit about how this event is going to work. We're going to be starting off uh, getting to know a bit more about some of the interesting work that our speakers are doing uh, in public health, policy, sustainability and in other areas. And then we're going to be putting uh, to our experts a bit of a provocation. What's on the agenda for them for 2022, or indeed, what do they think should be on the agenda? What's the priorities that they see uh, or they would like to see? Uh, each of them are going to speak for about five minutes each. And then at the end, we're going to be coming together for some questions from you. So yes, two months into 2022, what can we look to and learn from so that maybe we can all see a better world at the other side of this year? That would be great, wouldn't it? So um, to give us some perspective and maybe some hope, you never know, we've gathered five brilliant speakers and thinkers for you. Each of them are leaders in their field and they're all doing really interesting work and we're so thrilled to have them join us. Um, again, we might not think we have all the answers to everything, but I think the insights that we can gather from today can really help to inform some other areas, uh, perhaps in your own thinking, perhaps for you at work or at home and, and lead to an enhanced understanding and maybe even some real solutions. So lots to discuss. I'm really excited to welcome our guests today. Um, joining me is Dr. Ariana Rambilla. She's a senior lecturer in architecture and the co-chair of the Cluster Building Efficiencies of the Smart Sustainable Building Network. Hello, Ariana. Good to see Hi, you. Hi, Fenella. Also joining us is Professor, Associate Professor Melody Ding. She is from the School of Public Health here at the University of Sydney. She's an epidemiologist and a population behavioural scientist. Hello, Melody. Hi, Fenella. Um, Dr. Aranima Malik is here too. She is a senior lecturer in the Integrated Sustainability Analysis Group at the School of Physics and in the discipline of accounting. Her expertise is in big data modeling to quantify sustainability impacts at local, national, and global scales. Hello to you too, Aranima. Um, hello, g'day. Uh, Janani Janath Janathana has also joining us today and she's worked across various spaces in the nonprofit space, community organizing, uh, governance, policy, campaigning from her career as a unionist and is currently a board director for Action Aid. Also is presently at the Sydney Policy Lab where she works with government, civil society and academics to foster collaboration for real world policy impact. Hello to you too, Janani, good to have you here. Hey, thanks for having me. 
G'day. Uh, and finally, um, uh, Dr. Sandra Peter joins us. She is the Director of Sydney Business Insights and her research expertise and practice focuses on engaging with the future in really productive ways. Hello, uh, Sandra, it is great to have you here too. Good to see you, Fenella. Good to see everyone. Thank you. And again, welcome to each of you. I think it's going to be a real treat. I can't wait to hear from each of you. Just to remind you, we've got five minutes each for our speakers to share with us their vision for 2022, the priorities, what should set the agenda or might have been missing from the conversation uh, and what's going to lift or sort of shift the landscape and uh, things to come. Then we're going to go to some of your questions. But just to begin with, I just wanted to kick off by um, finding out a bit about what everybody has been working on. So Janani, let's, let's go with you. Tell me a bit about what uh, you've been working on lately. What's exciting you at the moment? Yeah, um, as, as you acknowledged, you know, um, there's been a lot of disruption and um, I'm currently looking at how misinformation, disinformation has been spread throughout a time, especially like the pandemic and especially with an election year, um, that's an increasing focus. And what I mean by that is, you know, we saw messaging around vaccines um, and channels such as WhatsApp, Facebook, you know, Instagram, you name it, are places where people go for information. And unfortunately, not always the information is correct. And there are actually communities who are disproportionately impacted by misinformation and disinformation. Um, and we're actually looking at, as we work at the Sydney Policy Lab with civil society, as how, um, what they think about, you know, misinformation, disinformation, how they want to combat it. And, you know, how do you combat something as big um, and overwhelming as big tech? So, those are some of the big questions I've been dealing with and grappling with at the moment, but I'll leave it at that. Amazing. I, I look forward to hearing more from you very soon. Thank you so much, Janity. I'm Sandra Peter from Sydney Business Insights. Again, thanks for joining us. What, what are some of the big kind of picture things that you're looking at at the moment? Thanks for having me, Fanella. And I, look, I've been looking into something that, that universities are not really great at, and, and that's, that's kind of unlearning. Um, and we all come to universities to learn about things and we all do research to, to learn about things. But turns out a lot of the things that we used to know for sure or understood are no longer true. So these are like ideas, concepts where the world has kind of changed without us really noticing. And everyone kind of knows we know we need to learn new things, but we often forget to kind of let go of some of the things that we already knew. Knowledge, ideas that no longer kind of fit how the world works. Um, and this on learning is, is, is a lot harder um, because most of these things are, are just common sense. And it turns out we live in a time when there are a lot of things changing and they usually have to do with, with technology. So things like artificial intelligence or algorithm or big data, these, these kind of things bring things um, about, but also some of them are amplified by COVID-19 or even hidden by COVID-19. So we tended to look at a lot of these things, whether they have to do to, you know, with big data not being the new oil or with innovation or even retirement, but a lot of them actually happen to be in the world of work. And, and that's um, likely our focus area for, for next year. What things in the world of work do we need to let go that no longer hold true? And I'll talk to you about a few more today. Oh, I love it. I, I, fantastic. I'm looking forward to hearing more. Thank you so much, Sandra. Melody Ding, again, fantastic to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us. Really exciting to hear what you've got to say. What, what are some of the, the things that you've been really excited about that you're working on at the moment? Thanks, Vanilla. Um, I think this year happens to be a transition year for me because I'm moving on from more from identifying problems, monitoring risk factors to trying to find solutions. Because, you know, as you introduced, I am an epidemiologist. 
something that nobody knew how to spell or pronounce two years ago, but now everybody knows. So a lot of my work in the past has been, you know, identifying risk factors for chronic disease and tracking the trends at the population level. But now I'm at the stage that I want to really move towards engaging different sectors for really trying to um, get everyone to work together, different sectors to work together, to try to implement policies, evaluate policies that um, more fundamentally change the way we live. That sounds fantastic. I was going to ask you if you can spell epidemiologist backwards, but I won't do that to you. It's always oh, difficult. I, <laughs> <laughs> I can't hard. do that. <laughs> Who can? Um, thank you, Melody. I'm looking forward to hearing um, what's been your priorities or what will be, you think, for, for 2022. Thank you so much. Um, Ariana Brambilla, again, thank you for joining us. Uh, tell me a bit about what you're excited about or what you're working on at the moment. Thank you, Fenella, and thank you for inviting me. So I'm looking at another big challenge that interests all of us, and that's climate change and sustainability in construction. And basically, my research focuses on regenerative built environments with particular, particular focus on buildings and their role in promoting a paradigm shift in construction. So what we are looking at and what is I think really exciting is a future where buildings are not more, not more, not anymore consumers, but are producers or restorers to the environment. So it means bringing that extra positive contribution to society or also energy, for example, or providing food or all of these things. So how can building actually be positive in our everyday lives? Okay, so it serves a function that we, we care about and it uh, looks after us too. I, I, thank you. I look forward also hearing uh, your thoughts. Uh, and uh, finally, Aranima Malik, again, what's, uh, what are you excited about or what are you working on um, at the moment? Um, thanks, Vanilla. Uh, what I am excited about are these supply chain assessments. And I'm currently looking at two particular sectors, health and food. Um, so really for these two sectors, I'm trying to figure out what are the hidden hotspots in the supply chains, both locally and globally, um, that are sort of having a positive or a negative impact on other countries' ability to achieve the sustainable development goals. So for achieving sustainable development goals, I'm, I've come up with some indica indicators that I'm using to see um, uh, how you can unravel these supply chains to look at regional impacts and sectoral impacts, and I'll talk about that in um, in my five minutes. Thanks. Fantastic. Much. All right. Thank you so much again. Uh, thank you to each of you. I, I feel like we've thrown the challenge, the gauntlet to you to, to consider what some of the, the shape of things that we might look forward to or should consider um, in 2022. So I'm really looking forward uh, to hearing a bit more about your work. So let's do it. Let's dig a little bit deeper and, um, and, and go to it again. Each of our speakers have got five minutes to talk about the priorities for 2022. Sandra, you're up first. Thanks, Fanella. And um, I want to chat a little bit about um, automation of work. And I want to start by just putting it to you that automation we know creates efficiencies, right? It reduces the amount of work available to humans. Yes, it, it leads to job losses, but the remaining work will always be of higher quality. And this kind of common wisdom has underpinned the way we automate work. And it's certainly always been true for automation of, of physical labor, right? Machines lift really, really heavy objects, take care of like physically taxing work, repetitive tasks, you know, digging around, mining stuff, physical labor in, in general. So think about any kind of work in like manufacturing on oil and gas rigs in agriculture. So besides efficiency gains, right? Automation also does away with many things that we don't really like to do. We don't like to lift heavy objects and do, you know, dangerous work. 
And the latest incarnation of, of, of automation and the one that we look at is used in artificial intelligence and, and algorithm, but it's kind of based on the same, the, the same theory that, you know, while artificial intelligence might take away some, some of the jobs, um, it will still take away the things that are less valuable. We'll be freed to focus on things that are distinctly human. Um, we'll be able to use our curiosity, our imagination, our creativity, our emotional and social intelligence. So you have headlines like this in the New York Times, right? Automation may take our jobs, but it will restore our humanity. Yep. Surprisingly, our research kind of shows that in many industries, artificial intelligence and the use of algorithms can leave workers a lot worse off as the quality of their work declines. So for us, it all started, and I'll, I'll tell you a bit of a story. It all started with the story out of Kickstarter. And probably man, many of you have, have heard of Kickstarter, giant um, a platform on, on which people pitch creative project and they fundraise money from from the public and you know in the first couple of years that they, they started kickstarter they they raised i think it was about billion dollars more than the national endowment of arts in 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 the us more than all the money that that they gave away and people would come to to kickstarter with their wild ideas and kickstarter would get to decide who gets to ask for money from from the public and there were a bunch of people like imagine in a room much like the one i'm in here now at the university of sydney you know a lot of people in the room saying oh this this um project you know cards against humanity that sounds pretty good the new veronica mars movie that sounds pretty good too um let's let this uh, projects through and quickly the number of projects that was coming to ramped up like quite dramatically they went from like 200 to 2000 these people are working weekends they're panicking about christmas because when they come back from christmas they have even more projects on their plate so the vice president of kickstarter says okay we, we need to automate some of this because our, our people they just can't can't handle it um so they come up with an algorithm that would let through the projects that they knew had really good chances of success right and these are all like the great games and the new backpack and all these things and the humans were left with projects that you know required a little bit more thinking where the types of projects that they would be looking at would be you know things that tested the limits of the platform like impractically heavy duvets or, or helmets you know they're not allowed to pitch for medical devices so is the helmet a medical device or or not and suddenly there's a lot fewer projects that people are coming across. But from an office where people would high five themselves because Cards Against Humanity is out and raised a million dollars and so on, it went to a point where people are just looking at basically the bottom half of the projects um, as set by a robot. So from an office where everybody's high fiving themselves and having fun, these people are kind of sitting around there drinking coffee, going, that's not fun anymore. And so we're talking to the vice president of, of Kickstarter and, and he's like, well, suddenly people are only getting to see the really difficult cases, the ones that have very low chances of success. They have to reject a lot of things. So this kind of left us thinking, well, what happens? Automation was supposed to make us more creative and it was supposed to make this place more fun. But suddenly all we have is places with complex judgment where employees take longer, it's cognitively draining, and there are no easy wins. So they started us up on a, on a um, path of research where we realized that with cognitive automation or our common wisdom around automation makes things easier, it's turned on its head because with physical automation, we always automated away really heavy, hard things. In physical automation, hard are the strenuous tasks. 
in cognitive automation, we can only ever automate away the easy wins, the things that we understand, the things for which we can build an algorithm because we know how it works. So whether it's people in, um, in tech companies or, uh, you know, nurses who only get to see the patients who are, you know, at, at end of life or who are difficult, who are aggressive, um, who are, you know, um, requiring a lot more care. In all of these industries, we were seeing the same thing. Automation of um, cognitive work leads to a depreciation of, of work quality. And we looked at, at tech, we looked at, at lawyers, we looked at pilots, um, together with my colleague Kyrene, also in the business school. Um, we went through a whole host of industries finding pretty much the, the same thing. And even in, in industries where you would think, you know, surely if you're looking at airline pilots, if I automate a plane, that's going to be easier work um, for, for the pilot. Turns out not. Um, and there was a lovely quote from 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 um, um, Captain Captain Sully, Charles Sullenberg, not Tom Hanks, the actual actual Captain Sully, who pointed out that it requires like much more training and much more experience, not less, to fly these automated planes because the effort surrounding the training of of the pilot is much much bigger. The pilot doesn't just have to know how to fly a plane; has to know every automated system and every combination in which a, a sensor could fail and what would happen on. Um, on that plane. So to sum it up, and again, if, if um, Tonella would give me 10 minutes, I would tell you about all, all them industries. To sum it up, really, robots are coming to make your job much, much harder. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. The robots are coming. They're going to make our jobs a lot harder. What's the word cognitive? Uh, the automation of cognitive work. Sandra, Peter, they're sharing us uh, with us some of her insights for 2022 and uh, some of the, the work that they've been working on uh, at the University of Sydney for Sydney Business Insights. Uh, and now it is a great pleasure to uh, join or have our speaker, Melody Ding. Thank you, Fenella, again. It's a, such an exciting opportunity. Um, I will not be talking about robots. I think that's such a fascinating topic, but I will talk about humans. So um, I think whether or not we're thinking about our health or not, um, in the last two years, that has been the topic that dominates our life. And in a way that COVID forced us to be introspective on the way we live um, and, and, and appreciate our health, because all of a sudden for two years, we, we really have to drastically modify our behavior so that we could survive. And as we move forward, whether to get COVID completely behind us, hopefully that's the case, or we just learn to live with COVID. I feel like that we have to, you know, start to move on and live our life in a different way. So why do I mean in a different way? Because the last two years, COVID has really disrupted the normal way that we live and it has substantial consequences on our health. And sometimes in order to preserve our physical health, we're actually challenging our mental and social health. So before I, um, I, I go more into the details, I do want to bring back the WHO, the World Health Organization definition of health. So it means it's not an absence of illness, but you know the good quality thriving of our physical mental and social health. So all these three pillars are important. But through the last two years of social distancing, lockdown, border closures, we're primarily preserving our physical health. And, and to some extent, only one aspect of our physical health, which is not to contract the virus. And there is the mental and social health aspects that are so important, somehow neglected. And uh, 
potentially we're paying a price for it. So just a couple of days ago, we, we saw some really shocking data coming from the UK in terms of how um, obesity has trended um, in the last two years as a result of COVID. And uh, um, it, it's not looking good. And uh, I can imagine that it will be similar in Australia. We anecdotally talked about uh, COVID petting and that's no joke about that. So from the, from the physical health aspect, COVID has caused destruction in a way that we live, in a way that we eat, in a way we exercise. But in the, in the meantime, it also pre presents some unique opportunities. And as someone who primarily focuses on physical activity, I think I'm just gonna take that as an example. On the one hand, we're having people who normally have the opportunity to go outside to take the bus, take the train to work or walk to work, all of a sudden being locked down at home, changing the work environment, changing the amount of incidental activities that we do. But on the other hand, as one of my research projects has shown that there is such a thriving interest in you know, online fitness apps and there has been a lot of creative um, fitness solution that has come out of this COVID-19 pandemic. So it's really a double-edged sword in that in that respect. And similarly with diet, on the one hand, what we're observing is that people tend to eat more because of the proximity of their home office to the kitchen, for example. And we have seen a, a really rapidly increasing number of people ordering Uber Eats, uh, meal delivery, online meal delivery service, which um, often includes poor quality, nutrition poor um, food. But on the other hand, we're also seeing a lot of people taking the interest to learn to cook, learn to bake. And so there's, again, double-edged sword. So this is from the physical health aspect. From the mental and social health aspect, we have been hearing a lot about social isolation and loneliness. We've been hearing a, a lot about how border closure has been affecting our lives. On the other hand, almost everyone has now learned to connect in a different way. Whether it's better or not, it's a different way that we can communicate with each other. It's a different way we can socialize with each other. So again, there are costs and there are opportunities. So moving forward, some of us have already made a more permanent change of our lifestyle, such as you know, moving into part-time working, uh, remote working arrangement, or some of us have chosen to relocate to different areas. So there are a lot of permanent changes happening at the same time. In the meantime, there are social trends happening in terms of our diet, in terms of our social life and the physical activity. How do these play with each other in terms of moving forward and trying to thrive as human species to really try to build up our three pillars of health again in terms of physical, mental, and social health? I am really, really curious and I'm, I'll be keenly observing in 2022. Thank you so much, Melody. Amazing to hear from you. And I'm, I'm also keen to, to hear how this pans out towards the end of the year. So we've heard from Melody Ding, we've heard from uh, Sandra Peter, and now uh, we've got to, talked about healthy bodies. Now let's talk about healthy homes. Our next speaker is Ariana. Let's take uh, your take for some of the key issues and trends for 2022. Here she is, Ariana. Thank you. So I will start with a very simple and quite obvious statement, and that is climate change is real. So we know that buildings are responsible for more than one quarter of the energy resources depletion and as well as carbon emissions that contribute to climate change. However, the pace in which 
the construction sector is up taking action to mitigate its impact is too slow. And that's why we need a paradigm shift. So we need buildings and built environments to go beyond the zero impacts and moving towards being enablers of an healthier and more sustainable future for all. And the key aspects here in my research is for all. So we know that climate change and extreme weather events do not impact everyone equally, but vulnerable communities are more exposed to suffer irreversible consequences. So sustainability should not be only technologies that can be incorporated in buildings and that can produce energy or other type of resources such as water or food, as long as this is a very important part of sustainability, but should also look at the add value that the built environment may represent for different communities. For example, in one of my latest projects that um, I'm developing with a stellar team from PASS, so the Faculty of Art and Social Science, we look into current design and construction practices for remote and regional indigenous community, communities. So what we did was actually surveying the, these communities and try to create two models. So we create a model for a typical home as it would be designed and built today, and the model for a refurbished home, so as it would be refurbished um, with the current approaches. And then we assess the thermal and energy performance of these two models under current and future climate. So our modeling indicated that these buildings are already now unsuitable for current climate. So it means that they are performing poorly already now. So what happened in the future? What will happen in the future? These, the, the results that we get from this project basically indicates that the housing approach that is currently, that we are currently undertaking for remote and regional um, indigenous housing is unable to provide comfort and health in indoor environments. So we found actually temperatures that were well above what we consider to to be a safe thresholds for temperature. So at the end, to keep temperature within the comfort range, the only solution at this stage, and, and not in all cases actually, is aircon. So um, aircon then is clearly translating into significant economic and financial burden for um, the, the occupants of, of, of these buildings, so for the affected communities. And, and then at the end, the, the choice is often between high cost or comfort. So if we look also at the current repair and maintenance approaches in, in this cohort of buildings, we know that they are ineffective for a number of reasons. So starting from logistic to operative issues, but this means that often the homes that are, these homes are left even without the essential hardware necessary to even make this choice between comfort and, and high cost. So it's it's like an unfair situation. So when we look at climate change, we also saw that the, even refurbished, even when refurbished existing home is not an adequate measure for future climate change. So even, even if existing housing were improved, benefits will be only short term. So the question became or become, how can we design and build resilient housing for this community. And the agenda for 2002 is really like prioritizing these aspects. And, and we aim at understanding how simple but effective intervention can, interventions can be undertaken to improve health, health outcomes associated with regional and remote housing. So this actually means transforming the way homes are designed, built, 
repaired and, and operated as well. So we have to acknowledge that during the design stage is actually very rare to consider how the design choices that we take today will impact the occupants in the future. So let alone for indigenous housing, actually. So our goal for this year and our agenda is really to make a whole, um, a whole of a life approach to costing and health central in the design and construction to housing. So the good news is that there is an increasing awareness in the construction sector about climate change, carbon emissions, and health impacts associated, associated with the built environment. And, and we see some green, green building rating tools that are starting to introduce requirements about all of these rediscovered awareness about sustainability. So as I think that this is a very positive change as it may drive more attention toward this, this issue. However, as, as often the case for new and fancy things, the majority of the discussion revolves around new buildings and a type of construction that is usually more common in affluent communities. So the challenge for 2022 is therefore to understand how this discussion can and should include and involve vulnerable communities to not make sustainability and health indoor environments a luxury that only few can afford. Thank you so much, um, Ariana Brambilla. That's fantastic. A luxury that only a few can afford. Um, thank you again. Again, if you have a question for Ariana, feel free to um, pop that up onto uh, slido.com um, using the code Sydney Ideas. Um, so much, uh, so so much insight there. I can't wait to hear more. Thank you, Ariana. Our next speaker, in fact, there's a great seg, in fact, um, from what Ariana was talking about just there to our next speaker, who is our Aranima Malik. Um, so uh, let's hear from Aranima Malik about some of the priorities uh, for 2022. Over to you, Aranima. Thanks, Vanilla. Um, so my priorities for 2022 um, are to look at how sustainability supply chain assessments can be integrated in policy making and in business practices. So we know that we have the tools to um, assess uh, supply chain impacts. Uh, they have been developed over a number of years, uh, but they're not yet widely being used uh, in decision-making or in business uh, practices. So understanding the needs of decision-makers uh, and working with decision-makers um, is probably one way of sort of addressing this knowledge, uh, concern and action, uh, the gap between knowledge and concern and action. So my priorities for 2022 um, are to work, work on um, two key projects and I'll talk about those. Um, one is with the United Nations Sustainable Development Solutions Network and with UNSDSN, um, what we're currently doing is understanding the key research questions um, that they are interested in getting the answers for. And we are trying to apply the tools for assessing supply chains, for measuring impacts uh, from a spillover perspective. So I'll tell what a spillover is. Um, so spillovers are essentially um, these um, impacts that happen in other countries around the world uh, because of actions of one country. So if you have a country consuming a good, um, for example, uh, whether it's um, food or whether it's um, textile products, and those commodities are produced in other countries around the world, so it's a bit of like, uh, like an import-export uh, relationship, then where exactly are those impacts happening and who is driving those impacts? So linking production with consumption using international trade models uh, and uh, further coupling this information with environmental indicators, with social indicators, uh, with economic indicators 
we can assess hotspots in supply chains. So we can say if you have consumption happening um, in a country in the EU, and I mentioned EU because that's uh, one of the focus of our project. So if you have consumption happening in EU, is there any other country around the world that is uh, being impacted uh, by a negative spillover impact. Um, so we can look at negative spillover impacts, which can either be um, fatal and non-fatal accidents, for example. We did a study looking at textile supply chains and found that about 21,000 non-fatal accidents uh, happen in the supply chains for satisfying consumption um, of textile products by the European Union, for example. Um, or we can look at greenhouse gas emissions, um, which is an environmental indicator. Uh, we can look at water use, we can look at material flows, uh, again, in social uh, indicators, uh, we can look at some positive spillovers, for example, employment. So, of course, um, uh, people around the world, uh, if they are producing goods for another country or for, for exports, then, of course, uh, that uh, is a positive spillover in the sense that uh, the, uh, there's income being generated, there, there are um, new jobs that come up uh, for supporting those industry and for supporting consumption. So we can quantify both aspects in terms of positive spillovers and negative spillovers. So in collaboration with you, SDSN, um, they are currently interested in understanding the supply chains, um, particularly for food consumption. Uh, so that's uh, one of the key areas that I'm working on in 2022. Uh, another key area that I'm working on in 2022 uh, is more closer to home uh, with New South Wales Department of uh, Planning, uh, Industry and Environment. And we are looking at the impacts of climate change on food supply chains uh, in New South Wales. So if you have extreme events, if you have climate change, of course, that leads to a decrease in output of certain industries. And we're targeting some key food producing areas. Uh, and we're trying to see what will be the regional spillover impacts uh, in terms of uh, different regions in New South Wales being affected, but not just New South Wales, other regions around Australia because of interconnected supply chain networks. And which sectors are being impacted? Is it just the food sector or is it actually transportation and services as well? Because they are, again, interconnected. And we, we did see that uh, uh, when we, um, with supply chain disruptions for COVID, for example, like more global supply chain disruptions. Um, so that's another area which we are focusing on. And as Adriana mentioned, vulnerability. Uh, we are looking at vulnerability, um, although from a different lens, um, we are uh, seeing uh, that because of supply chain disruptions, um, even though impacts directly don't take place in one region, but we, we have interconnected supply chain networks, impacts may be felt you know, um, many kilometers away uh, that you might not even be aware of. Um, so these tools and the models um, that we are working on at the University of Sydney uh, really help us in identifying these hotspots um, of uh, impact uh, and also for figuring out um, you know, where exactly we need to sort of um, drill down and take action for addressing impact. So my key priority for 2022 is to really see how these tools uh, and methodologies that we have been developing, how can these be integrated uh, in policymaking and also uh, with businesses. So I'll see uh, by the end of this year how far I get up to uh, in, in terms of um, sort of meeting this aim or the goal or uh, that I've sort of put forward for myself. Thanks, Vanilla. Thank you so much, Ariana. I love to. I can't wait to see how how that pans out by the end of the year. Our last speaker is Janine Janathana, and uh, she's going to give us a bit of a perspective on policy and collective action. Uh, it's an election year, so let's hear it now from our final speaker. Thank you so much, Janine. 
Yes, as you said, uh, 2022, an election year. And, you know, that means we're going to see the first half of this year be enveloped in public media and public discourse um, all about election priorities. And we're already starting to see that. And, you know, it goes without saying elections mean a lot of, you know, baby kissing tours, construction sites. But, you know, it also really brings an opportunity for the whole nation to reflect on what matters to us collectively. And what we're actually seeing and recently, Paul Bongiorno in the Saturday paper talked about how the election's becoming more of a contest of characters. And, and in this case, that is, you know, Morrison and Albanese. And we aren't really seeing, you know, the articulations of grand visions and, you know, grand ideas, which I'm sure is part of strategy. But uh, for a voter, an organiser, policy wonk myself, um, I think it's a real opportunity to see um, and to talk about how we're going to recover from this global pandemic and with a consideration to gendered and sustainable recovery. And again, elections present an opportunity even for those who aren't that politically engaged because we don't have a choice, but we have to make a decision about the future of this country. And especially those who might have been apathetic about politics before, uh, they've seen how the pandemic has shed light on, you know, who their leaders are, the roles they play in dictating our lives, um, you know, as, as small, as big as um, where we can go and the mobility that we have. So I think this election will be an interesting one and, you know, an opportunity for campaigners and organisers to really you know, push the public discourse on a bolder future for our nation. And a conversation that I would really like to see in the public debate is inspired by an event I actually attended in 2022, um, 21, sorry, at um, online at the King's College of London by the Global Institute of Women's Leadership, which is chaired by Julie Gillard. And it, the event was called How to Support Men to Care. And she talked to Ed Miliband about men sharing parenting responsibilities. And, you know, Ed himself reflected on encouraging male colleagues, male MPs um, to take parental leave and they also had a researcher from the behavioural insights team in the UK um, and the, they looked at some research to do with how remote working was working for both um, for people and how it actually impacted how households um, looked at labour and they saw that men and women um, were able to increase the time on um, parental care and caring for others in the home um, and that kind of created a bit more sharing between men and women. However, um, which won't be very surprising to many, uh, women still took on the bulk of this household caring. And, you know, not only are we coming out of a pandemic, but in Australia, I think this conversation um, is very timely because we've also come out of Royal Commission after Royal Commission into aged care, disability, and that's just to name a few sectors. Um, and only the other day we saw, you know, a nurse's strike. So um, these multitude of factors really drive the impetus to talk about what the International Labour Organization term as a care economy. And they define it to be the paid care, unpaid care and government investment in the care sector. And what we need to understand about these sectors is that they are female dominated and they dis and the issues obviously disproportionately affect women as they are the workers on the ground and those who enact care in the household. And um, 
you know, these conversations are happening and, and we have academics such as Ray Cooper and Liz Hill who've done phenomenal work on this for years, but also recently with the pandemic um, who recently, you know, were published around in The Guardian and the OECD forum about four building blocks for a gender equitable and sustainable recovery. However, we haven't really seen that translate to a, a bigger public discourse and into election priorities. So, you know, I think it's really our job as, as community and, and leaders in, in different spaces to really be pushing that. And, and we're starting to see that in small pockets. So, for example, there was the Thrive by Five campaign, which looked at early childhood um, education and equality and universal early childhood system. So things are happening. I think they just need to be pushed um, a bit further to the front. So I'm just going to leave it at that, Fenella. I know I've talked quite a bit, so um, I'll just leave it there. Thank you. Uh, I love it. Thank you so much, Janani, and thank you to all of our speakers. Again, thanks for those who've um, popped up some questions on slido.com. I'm going to go to those. Um, I'll go to some of your questions. I've got a couple of ones. Actually, I might go firstly with you, um, Janani. Time and time again, there's ample evidence, uh, research demonstrating the value of a care economy. You've just been talking about that. Uh, we know that it makes really rational sense. It's a compelling case and it brings so much social or socio-cultural value. Why haven't we seen it take off? What, what are some of the gaps here that we're seeing? Yeah, this is a really good question. And it's, you know, every policymaker, economist and researcher's existential question and frustration. And, um, you know, in the particular context of the care economy, it is women's work. And, you know, even in 2022, we're still unpacking historical notions of women's role in society. And, you know, that's that's demonstrated pretty recently, even in higher echelons of power with, you know, the Jenkins report. But um, the hope that I want to give our audience is that, you know, I think we get a bit overwhelmed by the issues at hand and we think that only, um, you know, uh, certain people can solve these problems. But I really want to, um, you know, my call to action for everyone is that we are all, um, you know, active community members and, you know, some of us voters, some of us not. Um, and, and it is within our remit to hold um, account uh, politicians and policymakers accountable through collective action, through joining your local um, community groups, through, um, you know, being activated and working across different lines. So um, I'll just leave it at that because I know there's quite a few questions and, and I really uh, want to hear from the rest. So it's about, it's about being informed. Thanks, Janani. Uh, Ariana, you've talked a lot about, of course, vulnerability in vulnerable communities. Um, what's the significance of sustainability uh, in remote vulnerable communities? And if we think about how we often talk about it when it comes to sustainability in our cities and in our CBDs, can you, can you talk about the two of those or compare that conversation? Yeah, thank you. This is a very compelling question. I think it's also related to one of the questions we received on slide about what is resilience and what do I mean when I speak about resilience? And I think that, as I was mentioning before, research and construction is often focused on, on new technologies, new buildings, uh, new building system, new materials. So it, it's a little bit like if we are hoping that there will be a new technology that will save us all somehow. And I'm not saying that this is not a, a correct approach. I'm just saying that it can't be the only approach that we take to sustainability because this conversation, vulnerable communities are left outside because there are different requirements, constraints, and challenges that are not the same. And if we speak from a construction research point of, point of view, the question remain, that remains is a challenge or let's say this kind of um, force or constriction that remains is new te uh, low tech versus high tech. So there is this trying 
um, th there is this vision towards high tech when instead in remote, uh, remote and regional communities, what we need is a low tech approach, which actually doesn't mean that it's less complex just because we call it low tech. It just needs to, to be uh, defined a little bit differently. So for example, resiliency in the case of remote uh, indigenous communities means also resiliency to climate change. So yes, future-proofing our homes, but also resilience to overcrowding, which is a, a big problem there. So, and that's where we speak about lack of uh, necessary hardware to actually do uh, basic stuff that we do in our, in our home. And that's not the same kind of resilience that we would need from a small apartment in Sydney, Sydney CBD, where the kind of context is different. So there we are looking at a different kind of yeah context and requirements. So it's really about looking at what are the needs and what are the opportunities that we have to do something. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, Aranima, you, you talked, of, of course, about supply chains uh, in, in your talk and a couple of questions for you have come through on Slido. But um, firstly, can supply chain assessment tools be applied to disaster modelling for measuring impacts of COVID or extreme weather events? What are your thoughts there? Yep. Um, thanks, Vanella. Very good question. Yes, um, that's the answer. Uh, we can apply supply chain sustainability assessment tools to disaster modeling. And the way it happens um, is that we have a model that captures interconnections between different sectors of the economy. So, for example, if you have the electricity sector, what does the electricity sector need as an input from other sectors in the economy for producing electricity? Um, if you have um, a service sector, what are the inputs that are needed by the service sector? So that interconnection um, on how the economy works is captured in these so-called input-output tables. Um, these input-output tables can be coupled with data on direct damages. So we've, we've done that for COVID-19. Uh, uh, for the first wave, uh, and a paper was published last year, so for the first wave, we gathered information on how COVID has impacted the tourism sector, the transportation sector, the manufacturing sector in different parts of the world. Um, and we sort of combined that information with how the economy functions to see that if you have a shock in the system, what would be the supply chain implications? So you can trickle through um, and model these shocks in the system by looking at how interconnections um, sort of play out in the economy and, and what would be these repercussions if you had um, a disaster, be it COVID or um, heat waves, floods, droughts, so that it can be modeled from a supply chain perspective. Okay, lots of questions have come through for you too. So uh, we'll get to some of those in a moment. But Melody, I'd love to go to you here now. It's, it's really exciting, of course, to hear about the next phase of, of your research. Um, and as our understanding of public health starts to, to grow, we can see that there's a, a common currency between public health and, and other areas that we've also touched on today and that you've talked about, urban, uh, urban planning and transportation and things like that. Why hasn't some of this um, happened sooner? I think traditionally there is a silo way of thinking not only in terms of research, but also in terms of policy. You know, for example, as someone who works in transportation, for them, their primary goals and then their KPI might be related to, you know, how they reduce traffic congestions, how do they get to move people more efficiently um, from one place to the other. And then, you know, the same with you know, education sector, for example, the, the priority might be how do we get our kids to achieve academically. And for our health sectors, of course, that's to optimize our um, health and well-beings. But what I'm really interested in is to get all these sectors to talk so that we can speak current, um, common currencies, for example, 
um, from take take an example from physical activity. A lot of us we don't have the opportunity to get outside and and ride a bike to work, for example, probably because it's too dangerous. It's um, um, there's no bicycle storage facility or shower at work. There's multiplicative factors in that, very similar to what Arunima has mentioned in terms of its interconnectedness with different sectors. But if we can then speak to transportation sectors and then and say, hey, you know, by improving the infrastructures for trans uh, for bicycle commuting, we're also reducing traffic congestions, which is good for you. And then, you know, we could also speak to environmental sectors and we all also reduce carbon emission. So really to line up this key concept called co-benefits that everybody in every sector gets a benefit. And the same, we can speak for education. How do we improve academic performance through kids' participation in physical activity, for example? So I really think that we're moving towards the time that we need to think collectively and think collaboratively in terms of thinking about the solutions and the benefits we all gain as members of the society. Absolutely. Um, Sandra, a few questions have come in for you um, on, on Slido. Uh, one of the first questions is from Simon, who's asked, cognitive and physical automation is intriguing. Thank you. Um, could automation lead to the next renaissance by providing humans more time? Is there evidence of more opportunity for creative pursuits? Your thoughts, Sandra? Uh, look, let, let me take that one. And as I answer it, I'll also answer Marcus's questions and a few few more on, on that list, because I, I think they all kind of speak to the to the same thing. And, you know, I'm a lapsed economist. My first degree was in economics. Um, but there was this um, article that John Maynard Keynes wrote in the 1930s that was called The Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. Um, and this was 1930. And in, in that, he said, you know, by the time his children are going to grow up, we'll be working 15 hours a week. And that's all going to be due to technology and machines and, and new ideas and creativity and, and automation, basically. Um, so back in the 30s and 50s, people were working about 38 hours a week. So we haven't made that much progress in the last 90 years. Um, so this has been an issue for, for quite a while. And I think there's a number of reasons that that won't happen. Um, first is that that you know if you're making a thousand bucks a day and I tell you just take the day to and go to the beach and and, and be creative, we're probably not going to forego the thousand bucks. Um, we're just you know competitive by nature and we like to buy stuff on the internet, so we we will keep working the more the more work there is. Second is that this thing is quite unequally distributed, right? It's not everybody's work gets more creative. Some people's work gets more creative and some people get fired. Um, but even for the people whose work does get more creative and there is a renaissance, uh, work gets quite a lot more intense. And I know there were a couple of questions there that were around kind of the medical profession. And there's like a nice case study from the Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital where they automate a lot of the um, data and, and pass around around patients and people have to enter stuff all the time in the machine and they have to carefully like rewrite the stuff that the computer wrote because it's not exactly right and the system stresses them out like a bit like workday stresses us out with you know you need to log your absences um in this case you need to you currently have deficiencies that are either delinquent or will make you delinquent in about five days so it stresses people out and what's more sometimes we're less creative when we automate work and we're seeing this um, and I'm guessing it might be the same in the medical profession but we're seeing this in law 
What's happening in, in the law profession is that we are automating away the easy task, document discovery, writing easy contracts, non-disclosure agreements, and, and so on, which are all the ways that people get apprenticed into the profession and learn their way in, into the profession. Now, those pathways are disrupted, so it becomes harder and harder to be creative. The way you write a really good contract is write a hundred of them, and then you'll be really, read and write a hundred of them, and then you'll get really good at it. Um, so I think, the, you know, I'm, I'm not um, I'm not arguing for being defeatist and saying automation is bad, you know, quite quite the opposite. And I'm, I'm basically arguing for two things. One is, is integrated work design. Don't think about tasks you can automate, think about people's jobs as a whole. Um, how can we refocus on, on designing work as a whole rather than just tasks? And second of all, think about role redesign. If, if these pathways to the organization are, are disrupted, if people can't learn on the job, if careers are disrupted, provide people with opportunities to update their skills or redesign their jobs. So not human against machine, even though, you know, they are coming for fill in accounting, that's for sure. Thanks, Sandra. We've probably got time for one more question. Um, and this has, uh, I might just go to the end of the question. This is for you, Janani. Um, it's, it's more about the upcoming election. So how can we um, impact the contest of personalities versus the true contest of ideas coming up to the election? I thought this might be quite a nice one to wrap up with. What are your thoughts on that one, Janani? I love that question. Um, it's a really hard thing for us to do, but I, I go back to, you know, what how important collective effort is. You know, it is us um, writing to our MPs. It is us talking to on-the-ground campaigners. And, and this election campaign might look different with, you know, COVID and no one's really wants to be door knocked. But I think um, we need to be, you know, writing to our politicians, contacting them in productive ways and talking to our friends at the dinner table and family about what ideas and what matters to them in this upcoming election. And, and that's how we community build and break that, you know, beyond character. Um, and it should be about big, bold ideas for this nation. I love that. And attend events like Sydney Ideas. So you get to hear about the breadth of big ideas across our community from supply chains to sustainability uh, in housing, et cetera, and our, and our health. Um, thank you to each of you for joining us for this really fantastic event. I'm not going to let you go just yet. I just wanted to get a final kind of like a your, your final thoughts or, or from one, one thing that you want our audience to remember after this event, what that might be, a little nugget of wisdom, a rousing call to action, anything at all. Take it away, Melody. What do you think? Collaboration is the key, whether it's across sectors, across disciplines, or just um, any of us as collective species together. Collaboration is the key. I love that. Uh, Ariana, you're next. Your thoughts? I, I think I will second Melody with collaboration and looking at like the broader picture rather than just focusing on ourselves. Yeah. Fantastic. Aranima? Um, I would say quantification is one thing, but it's the action that's really needed now. This is great. This is like all my research done in one hour. Uh, Janity? We all have the capacity to be social change makers and we have to own that power. Excellent. Sandra? I'll echo, I'll echo the change. Join the Unlearned Project. Old wisdoms make us blind to the consequences of tech. So join, join the Unlearned Project. 
Uh, this is fantastic. Uh, Unlearn project, we'll make sure that all those links, anything that our speakers have mentioned, we'll make sure that you can uh, see those links up on the Sydney Ideas uh, website. But I wanted to say thank you too from uh, Sydney Ideas for joining us here on uh, the Sydney Ideas um, event, Shape of Things to Come. So my thanks to our speakers, Ariana Brambilla, Melody Ding, Aaron Nima Malik, uh, Janani Janathana and Sandra Peter. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast. For more links, resources or the transcript, head to the Sydney Ideas website or subscribe to Sydney Ideas using your favourite podcast app.